episode 71 of UConn 360. That is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the Northeast, let's say. Not just not just <laughs> limited to Connecticut, but all across the Northeast. Uh, we are the uh, UConn 360 crew. I am your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Everyone. Julie Bartuka. Hey. And Ken Best. How are we doing today? I think we're all doing pretty good. Pretty good. We've got some uh, exciting stuff for you. And uh, why don't we just jump into some university news? Because there's some big news about grant funding. Is that right, Julie? That is right. In uh, fiscal year 2020, researchers from UConn and UConn Health secured nearly $286 million in research and other types of sponsored funding, which is the most in the university's history, according to the Office of the Vice President for Research. The record-breaking $286 million represents an increase of more than $19 million, or about 7%, over the previous fiscal year. UConn and UConn Health faculty also spent $250 million in expenditures for research and other sponsored activity, the highest combined annual amount in university history. So this is just really big. Um, research has been increasingly a big priority for us, and we're making waves there. And one of the ways that that's measured is how much uh, funding we get and how much we spend on it. So it's pretty Very cool. Very nice. Good news. Ken, shifting gears somewhat. You're going to tell us about the stage or perhaps the virtual stage. Yes, the Jorgensen Digital Stage will return starting November 1st with four events this semester. Uh, loyal listeners will remember that Jorgensen director Rod Rock live-streamed three performances by the Dover Quartet in the summer, and we talked about that. The series drew an online audience from 19 states and Canada using the OurConcertsLive.com platform, and there was also a live question-and-answer session with the ensemble after their performance this fall. The Jorgensen Digital Stage will begin November 1st with Sugar Skull, which tells the story behind the Day of the Dead through the adventures of the charismatic Candy Skeleton. On November 12th, the Pelobolus Dance Company will celebrate its 50th anniversary with the performance followed by a live Q&A session. Uh, a School of Fine Arts Faculty Showcase is scheduled for November 19th and will feature Grammy-winning trumpeter Louis Hanslick, horn player Eric Reed, who are both members of the internationally renowned American Brass Quintet, and violinist Solomia Ivankiv. A special guest will be Tanya Bannister, winner of the New Orleans International Piano Competition, and again, there will be a post-concert Q&A. And the series will close with the return of stage and screen star Kelly O'Hara performing a collection of holiday favorites and classics from Broadway and the American Songbook. She will talk with Rod and answer questions after the performance. Uh, the fall program is made possible by the Jorgensen co-stars and the Circle of Friends with media sponsors and other partners. For more information and tickets, you can go to jorgensen.yukon.edu. That's jorgensen.yukon.edu. And thanks to the Leonard Endowment, Yukon students, non-Yukon students, and Connecticut youth. K through 12 are invited to attend all events free. You just have to email the box office at jorgensen.tickets at uconn.edu. That's jorgensen.tickets at uconn.edu to request live streams. Excellent. Check that out, folks. So why don't we, uh, why don't we get into our, our features? Yes. We have another Brave Space segment where we're inviting members of the UConn community from all different backgrounds to talk about issues of justice, 
equity, and diversity and share their experiences. We know we have a big election coming up, and we brought back a past favorite podcast guest to talk about what it means to have a black woman of Indian descent on a major party ticket. Lisa Stipak, editor of Yukon Magazine, sat down with Manisha Sinha, an Indian-born American historian, the Draper Chair in American History at UConn, and the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, which won the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. Sinha took time from her very busy schedule to do this interview. In just the past month, she's had pieces in NPR, USA Today, and the New York Times, among others, on such topics as the choice of Kamala Harris as Democratic vice presidential candidate, the future of American democracy, the removal of Confederate statues, and correcting the record on our history of abolitionism. You wrote in the New York Times the day after Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris as his running mate that you were experiencing his choice as a personal gift. Can you talk to me a little about what that means to you? Yes. So I had written this op-ed a few weeks before Joe Biden announced his decision in anticipation that he would, in fact, give me this personal gift. And I sent it to the New York Times and I told them, you know, use it if Kamala Harris is announced as Biden's choice. And if not, you can just trash the op-ed. It so happened that she was chosen and they decided to run my piece. They ran it online initially, but it got so much feedback that they put it in print also. And I guess the reason why I felt uh, so invested in this choice is because I am Indian American and I study African American history. So Kamala Harris's personal origins really spoke to me at all levels, at a personal level, at a professional level. Here was the daughter of Indian and Jamaican immigrants, an Afro-Indian, if you will, American, who is now the nominee for the vice presidency of the United States. She's the first Black woman, the first Indian American woman to ever be chosen as the vice presidential nominee for a major political party. And that in itself was extremely inspiring. It is so important to have a diversity of voices and faces and representation. I think American democracy can uh, deal with a dose of optimism and hope. Speaking of hope, another thing that you wrote about, I believe in that same piece, is that after Obama was elected, you were able to stop explaining your last name. <laughs> yes. Uh, so when I first came to this country in the 1980s, my name, Manisha Sinha, just didn't sound to many people as, you know, the average run-of-the-mill name. People always ask me, how do you pronounce your name? What does it mean? You know, those are the kinds of questions that I got just used to fielding as an immigrant uh, to the United States, someone with a very Indian name. And when Barack Obama became president, as he said, a man with a funny name, I just felt that it really reflected what the United States means to so many different immigrants and so many people from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And I I remember I actually started writing for the public, for a broader audience, only after he announced his presidential candidacy, there was something about it 
that I think made me want to kind of reach out to fellow American citizens and talk about my own work in a way that I hadn't earlier. Before that, I I wrote academic books and I spoke to academic audiences. But starting in 2007, 2008, I was writing op-eds in the mainstream press. I became invested in politics in a way that I hadn't been even after getting my citizenship under President Bill Clinton. That's so interesting. I just assumed that you had always done this. I'm wondering what else that election changed for you personally and maybe what it didn't change. Personally and professionally, I felt that the election was such an important marker for me. I was writing a book on the history of the abolition movement, which eventually became the slave's cause. And I just felt so inspired and compelled to finish that book, I think, because of Barack Obama's presidency. And again, unlike many people in the left, I did not see Barack Obama's election as having ushered in a socialist revolution. You know, I've studied American history. I know presidents are elected in this country and that they work within the political and constitutional parameters that they work in. I saw Obama's election really more as a parallel to Lincoln's election, who was not an abolitionist. He was a moderate anti-slavery politician but he was able to implement a lot of abolitionist aims while he was elected. And that's how I started writing for the public. I did this piece where I compared Obama to Lincoln. You know, they were both one-time senators. Lincoln was a representative from Illinois. And Hillary Clinton was a senator from New York. She was a lot like Seward, who was contending for the Republican nomination, a seasoned politician against Lincoln. So I I did this comparison, and I think I was the first one to make that comparison. And I I published that in the Huffington Post, which had just begun as, as a digital media. And that analogy got picked up. And then I'm reading like 100 other pieces where people were saying the exact same thing. But I will happily lay claim to the fact that I was the first one to make that particular historical analogy. You say that people have trouble understanding the personal connection you feel to Black Americans and their history of slavery, which of course is your area of academic expertise. Why do you think people have such trouble understanding that connection? Well, I think uh, many people don't realize that the Black freedom struggle in the United States had a parallel in nationalist and decolonization movements in Asia and Africa, and that activists on both sides of the divide reached out to each other and had a connection. So in the New York Times, I wrote more about the civil rights movement, because that is something that most people have heard of and can understand. But if you go back even further to the earlier you know, 20th century, you have Indian nationalists um, like Jawaharlal Nehru, who became our first prime minister in India, sort of having a correspondence with W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black activists and one of the founders of the NAACP. So those connections have always been there. You know, Du Bois definitely wrote about that, about the darker peoples of the globe. 
and coming to the United States and studying African-American history, the history of slavery, emerging as a historian of slavery abolition and the Civil War, I felt those connections even more strongly because many of the issues that people were trying to fight for were, were somewhat similar. And yeah, I, I just think that we should be aware of that. And in a way, Kamala Harris's selection personifies it. You know, there are a lot of people who see in her, as they did with President Obama, a lot of their own aspirations and hopes. I think it becomes important to tease out those historical and political connections. It's not as if those are just natural or they just emerge. In fact, they're the result of political work. They're the result of activists, of civil rights activists, of people fighting in freedom movements throughout the world who have built those connections and who then analyze it and interpret it in a certain way. And that's important. You clearly were very much aware of U.S. politics from an early age, even in India. And I'm, I'm wondering if you at that time could imagine somebody like Kamala Harris being the vice presidential candidate for one of the major parties. Well, you know, growing up in India, I didn't even think I would come to the United States. I grew up in an average middle-class family. My father was quite a bit of an intellectual historian, and, and so are my sisters, and we are all historians. And I grew up in an India where, for the better part of my life, the prime minister was a woman, Indira Gandhi. So it didn't seem to me that there was something unusual about women being in power. And in India, you know, women are not exactly equal to men. It's a very hierarchical society, both in terms of gender and class. But just having a woman prime minister, I think for a lot of girls in India meant, you know, this is something that women could do. I remember I won a writing competition when I was in high school and it was an all India competition. It was called the Shankar competition and Prime Minister Indira Gandhi gave out the awards and I actually got to meet her and shake her hands and and receive that certificate from her. And I was I was thrilled. So I wouldn't imagine that I would have been in the United States or studying American history and that I would live to see an Indian American nominated for the vice presidency of the United States. I certainly didn't feel that way when I finally did come to the U.S. in the 1980s. It was a very conservative time. And, you know, I, I remember just taking part in all these rallies against apartheid because at that time the Reagan administration was supporting the apartheid regime in South Africa. I remember all my American friends always telling me and my husband, who is German, to sort of stand at the back of the rallies, because if we got arrested, we could be deported. We just had student visas. We were not citizens at that point. So no, even in the 80s, when I came here, I couldn't imagine that we would have had an African-American man as the president of the United States or a Black woman uh, as a vice presidential nominee. You're talking about when you first came and not long after that you started teaching. And I'm wondering how you've seen students change in that period of time. That's a great question. I think in general, this is what gives me hope and optimism. Even as I have grown older, my students remain the same age, which is kind of interesting. And they have different views and they've become more 
progressive and I think it kind of keeps me young and on my toes too. And I, I like that. I like interacting with young people in the United States because they've just grown up without a lot of the kind of racial baggage that their parents have had. Now, this might be a bit Pollyannish because clearly there are lots of people who may not feel the same, but I think maybe the universe does bend towards justice because they are definitely far more liberal than their parents and grandparents. I hope the universe is bending toward justice. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, in your opinion, what you see as things UConn is doing well when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and what do you think we need to do better? UConn on the whole, I think, has done a better job perhaps than most of the institutions I have known and been affiliated with. Let's put it that way. UMass, where I taught for 20 years, also was pretty good. These public institutions are doing better than they did. They seem to understand that the goal of higher education is education and not to make profits, which a lot of the private universities seem to be more concerned about their endowments and making money and tuition. Many of these public universities began actually during the Reconstruction era as land-grant universities, as public universities to serve, you know, the public good, the common good. I think academic institutions in general in the U.S. and institutions of higher learning are very good at the form of being liberal and diverse and having the right policies. We are lacking with substance. And the reason why we are sometimes lacking substance is is not so much the fault of the institutions themselves as the fact that they are a reflection of broader society. And since American society has grown more and more unequal with fewer and fewer people having access to higher education, and especially for communities of color, it becomes very difficult to play catch up at that level. If communities have been deprived of good schools and educations right from the start, you know, how do you play catch up at the university level? And I see a lot of American institutions trying to do that, play that catch up game. And even then they're not completely successful because we are not that diverse. We are still not that diverse, even though we have more women In higher education, we have more people of color, but many times I find myself in a room of Civil War historians where I am the only (laughs) non-white woman, right? Whether it's a panel or et cetera. And it doesn't phase me. I mean, it, it doesn't bother me. I just go ahead because I'm sort of used to it. But many of my younger students, it bothers them, you know, it bothers them that they are always asked to represent in in all white spaces or all male spaces. I think we can just do a better job with real substantial things rather than just having the form that, oh, we believe in this or or just like paying lip service to something. Because I think academia is very good at paying lip service to diversity, but it's it's really the hard work of of having more and more representation. And again, We can't do it alone. And that's why it's so important for a broader public. I don't have to just teach my students. I want to write for the average American citizen, the person walking on the road. Uh, Do you know 
that in the 19th century, this happened and this has a resonance to why things are today this way and what we are fighting for. Because many times I think history, American history especially, is told in, in very simplistic, mythic ways. One that prevents, I think, American citizens from being good citizens, from being good, virtuous citizens in the Republican sense of having political virtue, of being able to think of the common good before your individual self-interest. All right. Very interesting stuff. Ken, why don't you tell us about the conversation you recently had? Uh, yes. Our listeners may recall that one of our early guests on the podcast was political science professor Evan Perkoski, who studies issues related to uh, terrorism, insurgency, and violent and nonviolent uprisings. Uh, more recently, he's been studying why states use violence against their own civilians, particularly in the context of popular uprisings. These are issues around the world. Uh, he's the co-author of a new study titled The Role of Civilians in Preventing and Mitigating Mass Atrocities, which was conducted for the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. He did the study with human rights and international affairs specialist Erica Chenoweth, who is the director of the Nonviolent Action Lab at Harvard's Carr Center for Human Rights. And listeners may also remember that uh, uh, Erica Chenoweth uh, works with um, – Jeremy Pressman of Political Science on the Crowd Counting Project, which uh, I recently wrote about at UConn Today. Uh, there's some very interesting findings in this report, and uh, Professor Prokoski and I talked about it. What was the impetus to get this study going? The impetus came from the Arab Spring. And basically, the international system was hit with all these uprisings, violent, nonviolent, and we saw lots of variation within them variation in success, variation in how strategies that dissidents used. We also saw lots of variation in terms of what governments did in response to these uprisings. So we saw some governments crack down on nonviolent protesters like happened in Syria. We saw some others use force, but also maintain uh, somewhat restraint as we saw in Tunisia, for instance. The idea and the impetus for this project came partly from international events but then the White House actually saw all these things. And the White House is where Erica Chenoweth and I came into this. Now, President Obama created the Mass Atrocity Prevention Board. And this basically was him and his advisors recognizing that we really don't know much about why mass atrocities occurred. And then some started happening in the Arab Spring, which was also just this massive unknown. So President Obama got this group together, started studying them, get the money to go basically fund academics to do research on these questions. And that's how I came into it. I was a recipient of one of some of this money to basically conduct a new study to see if we can develop accurate models to forecast when mass killings and mass atrocities happen in the context of these national uprisings like the Arab Spring. Uh, what are your major findings? So my first research on this question that came down from President Obama's uh, Mass Atrocity Prevention Board, in that project, we tried to look at the strategic interaction between dissidents and states to see when mass killings would happen. And because a lot of the existing research on mass killings focused on the state perspective, is it a dictator who's ruling the country? How long has a dictator been in power? Do they rule over uh, the country with a military-based regime or power source? So if you're in the Arab Spring, do you choose violence or nonviolence? Do you request the United States support or not? How broad do you make your campaign and how many people do you get involved? We thought all those things would matter, and we found what they do. The method of contention that activists use, foreign support, the behavior of the military. Do you see military defections during the conflict? All of that was, were key contributors 
to whether or not states perpetrated mass violence against their civilians. In the most recent project, we kind of dug into this a bit more, and we were asked by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, down in Washington, D.C., to contribute to a project on the relationship between violence and civil society. So how many different types of non-state organizations, community groups, charity organizations, and like all these kind of non-state related activities that civilians do. Is that stuff related to violence as well? And can we use civilian organization to prevent violence from happening or from escalating? So in that project, we looked at the different metrics of civil society. We found that in general, civil society doesn't have a huge effect on its own. But in cases where you see lots of political inequality, it's institutionalized, then you can see civil society metrics being associated with really bad outcomes, like worse violence and more mass killings. So in places where you have political power distributed by wealth or by race or by um, ethnic group or by religion, those are contexts where people can mobilize and sometimes do really bad things. You also cite in conclusions that for decades, the United States has been encouraging civil society to get involved as a way to spread democracy and solidify it. At the same time, there are more questions being raised about the effectiveness of that. Could you, could you discuss what you think that means in the direction that things might have to go in, given this finding? Yeah, this is something that the U.S. government and policymakers around the world often do, where they latch on to something that inherently seems good, that's intuitively good, like civil society. And they say, you know what, we're going to go promote this without really giving it the research and the critical thinking and, and exploration that is necessary before you pump a ton of money into these programs. And I think a good ex analogy for that is democracy. In the early 2000s, uh, the neoconservative foreign policy movement really pushed this idea of democracy as a force for good around the world. It was based on a good idea, the democratic peace theory, that democracies don't fight each other. But we didn't really think through the implications of pushing democracy on other states. And that partially led to the Iraq war, where we said, you know what, if we make Iraq a democracy, they're going to be a much nicer country, a better country, better domestic and international politics. And we saw there is that even something inherently good like democracy, that when it's pushed on people who don't have experience with it and have other divisions in society, can really lead to some negative outcomes and not be so beneficial. And there, that was one of the factors that contributed to a civil war in Iraq post-2003. And the same thing is true with the civil society now. We're seeing policymakers push it. But what we find is that really it's a more complex matter. That's not universally good or universally bad. We have to think carefully about where we want to strengthen civil society. And maybe in some other countries, we don't push that first, but we instead try to address some of the factors that we know can make civil society a force for evil and not a force for good first before building it up. With this information, the question is, what can be done with it and how can it be used? What is your hope uh, now that this study is completed with the understanding that there's always more that you can research to find other information and perhaps other options. Right. So one of the things we, we find is that we shouldn't just promote civil society blindly. And that two of the big factors we find that can make civil society be a negative force is the pre-existing levels of inequality. So one of the things the U.S. State Department, USAID and others can do is first focus on reforming polities to reduce inequality and make systems more egalitarian so everyone has a voice. And we kind of focus and create a, um, a you know, more equal society and a better society first 
And then we build civil society on top of those. But I think the sequencing of how we approach building civil society needs to be rethought. And uh, what we find in our research is that we have to address some of these other societal level factors first before focusing on civil society. Is there a question that you think people should ask you about this study and the efforts that it's aimed at trying to uh, gain some more insight about that you don't get asked? Yeah, I think these findings have lots of ramifications for kind of everyday life and not as saying that we should be expecting mass violence or major conflict in the U.S. or anything. I think the point and one of the broader findings of the study is that when you have an equal, fair society, when you have people engaging in lots of these organizations and meeting each other and talking to each other, that produces better outcomes than when you're polarized and when you're unequal. And so while we study in terms of mass killings, I think these general findings would have a lot of ramifications and be kind of similar to looking at general levels of conflict in societies, where there's other forms of violence, but just people getting along. And I think all states would benefit from that sort of approach of supporting civilians, supporting their organizations, reducing inequality and making things fairer for everybody. Is there anything else you think folks should know about what this study is about and what you hope to see come out of it? One other thing that's worth noting is I think we underestimate how much conflict there is in the world outside the U.S. sometimes. It's also very easy to focus on what's going on at home with lots of major events happening here, rightfully so. But I think most Americans would be surprised at how many mass killings have been going on in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, it's a lot of countries we wouldn't expect there to be mass violence. And a lot of them have been slow, simmering conflicts where maybe you've had a thousand people killed over the last five years. So it hasn't been a sudden dramatic spike like we think in some conflicts like in World War II or in Rwanda or something like that. But there are lots of civilians who are very highly repressed, who are facing significant barriers to political participation, uh, free speech, and kind of the basic things we take for granted here in the U.S. And it's important to, to recognize that uh, all this is happening outside of America, while we're sometimes very much focused on ourselves. Very interesting stuff. For Tom's History Corner this week, I thought we'd go back exactly 50 years to October 1970 and the end of many traditions. So one thing that interests me as someone who study, I don't study, I just look at stuff from the past. <laughs> one thing that interests me is that you kind of used to have a lot of very specific traditions that were related to certain times of year. So there'd be like a, a rope pull between the freshman and sophomore classes at the start of every semester. There'd be homecoming, which we still have, but it was very elaborate. And there were sort of these giant paper mache floats that each residence hall would build. And there are all kinds of traditions like that. There was the Pied Piper Parade, which involved throwing someone into Mirror Lake, which we discourage now. <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting in when these traditions stopped. And the answer is the, the turbulent 60s, which I think is a, a broader term than just the 1960s. Right? The turbulent 60s lasted into the 70s. And in this case, it appears that homecoming 1970 was the first homecoming that saw the end of a lot of familiar traditions. So this is from the Daily Campus, October 17, 1970. For the first time in over 20 years, the University of Connecticut's homecoming weekend does not include the election of a queen to reign at the homecoming ball and at halftime ceremonies during the homecoming football game. The homecoming ball has also gone by the way this side uh, this year, as have the traditional open house festivities for alumni at fraternities, sororities, and independent residence halls, UConn students have also decided not to build the paper mache displays and floats that used to dot the campus during the annual fall spectacle. 
And so the, the, the piece doesn't actually give any reason for this, but I assume it was the tumult of the times. It does go on to note that one important aspect of Homecoming, the Homecoming concert, was still going forward, featuring, as the a piece describes, two contemporary singing groups, The Birds and mm. McKendry Spring. Never heard of that one. Oh, I remember McKendry Spring. They were good. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't quite as popular as The Birds, although this was sort of post-popularity birds, for those of you who are keeping up. <laughs> so the students decided not to do these events. That's yes. interesting. Because, you know, in recent years, there was the end of spring weekend, and that kind of came from the top down. Right, that's true. And I think this might have been the root of the urban legend that the student union or the student undergraduate student government tried to sell the mascot, mm-hmm. which, as we established in a previous episode, probably did not happen. <laughs> why? Why do you think that came from this? I think because maybe people were dropping so many traditions and maybe later people assumed that the mascot would have been among that. Oh. Well, well, also some some historical perspective. If you're talking about October of 1970, that was after the national shutdown of schools following the shootings at Kent State the previous mm-hmm. spring and all the student protests against the war in Vietnam. So uh, there was kind of a, uh, everybody coming back had experienced that the pre- just three or four months earlier. It also makes reference to something called Glide-O-Ride Tours of Campus, but it doesn't explain what that is. Oh my God, I'm dying to know what yeah, that is. <laughs> that's another, that's a, that's a great example of something that, I think a lot of reporters today, like they use terms, they don't think they have to explain, but you know what? Glide-O-Ride, got to explain that one. Yeah. Wow. What do we, what's your best guess? Oh boy. Um, I don't know. Cause it sounds I mean, like a, like a luge situation. Yeah, but it was, it was October, <laughs> so there wouldn't be snow on the ground. I know, but like something. Dog sled? Dog sled. Tyler, Glide-o-ride? Tyler, give us a guess. Glide ride. Uh, honestly, the only thing I, I think of like right now is like, and, and it's modern, but like I think of like the electric skateboards and like there you go. Yeah. But I don't scooter, know what that would be. Scooter type of apparatus. Yeah. Maybe it was a Segway. We should do early that for, Segway. We should bring back the Glido ride. For well, there is a Glido ride Greyhound bus right now. Apparently, it's like a shuttle bus. Could have been, could have been a bus could've tour. Could have been a bus tour. Wow! Send us your best guesses. Yeah. Glider. Anybody know what a Glido ride was? At UConn podcast. Oh, I, I see. I, I can see a picture. I can see a picture of it. It's basically like a tourist thing. Uh, I guess the closest thing would be the Boston the the, the duck boats, like the where doubled oh, where, where duck they, boats. you know it, it's it's an open air thing and you just sit in like a, a carnival ride and you just sort of glide around the street. I think that's what mm. it is. All right, send us your glider ride pics. <laughs> that's right. There's yeah. got to be somebody out there who knows. Yeah, if you are a, a former, I mean, glider if you're the ride, inventor of the glider ride, right, or a passenger or a glider ride operator. Or the the lawmaker who got the glider ride banned after some <laughs> horrible tragedy. Do you know that I am from Southington and they banned silly string because people used to at the Apple Harvest Festival every year people used to like just destroy the streets with silly string. So there's a silly string ban in Southington. Really? Yeah. Fun fact. Apple Fest probably not happening this year, right? No. Unfortunately, that's a, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it is. No fritters for me. Well. Uh, <laughs> On that note. On that, yeah, on that very happy note, <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, go ahead and find us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. If you, if you have any Glido ride info, please get in touch with us uh, at UConn Podcast. 
You can also find uh, old pictures at main underscore old. I'll try to find, I'm not going to be able to find a Glido ride picture. But I'll try to, <laughs> I, I do have pictures and I think I posted some recently of some of these giant paper mache creations that students would make. They're really cool. It's kind of a shame that we got away from that. And you can find me at TJ Breen on Twitter. I mostly just uh, tweet pictures of fall foliage at this point. It's very edgy. <laughs> your pictures this week on your time off were beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. It's very nice visits. Very edgy, controversial material on Twitter. <laughs> Tyler, is there anything you would like to promote or tell the good people of listener land about? Um, I'll do the usual. Um, the Yukon Fasa Instagram account. Um, that's where we'll be posting everything going on with the Yukon Fasa uh, club at Yukon. Nice. Julie, what about you? I'm at Julie Bartuka, and by the time you hear this, the Yukon Health Journal will be out. If you visit healthjournal.yukon.edu, you can see a PDF. We have a great feature on some of the work uh, Yukon School of Medicine and Dental Medicine students are doing to address health disparities, in mostly in the city of Hartford. At least two stories from the Health Journal will be running on Yukon today in the month of November. Yes, including that one. Ken, what about you? Other than your popular TikTok dance account. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's <laughs> slowing down a bit, I suppose. You know? well, it's, uh, oh, he's over it. What's the next big thing, Ken? <laughs> I don't know. I have to think about this. <laughs> but in the meantime, on Saturdays from 3 to 6, the Good Music Show at 91.7 WHUS in stores. UConn Sound Alternative streaming online at whus.org. And people are listening all over the place, apparently, from what I've been told. I just I have no evidence, but uh, that's what we do now. Play, play some McKendry Spring. Yeah. This Saturday. I bet he could. Uh, if, I, if I could find... I don't think I have any vinyl here. I just got a new turntable, so we're going to be able to play vinyl on the show now. I have to, I have to put it together. It arrived yesterday. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I can dig some McKendry Spring up, just so Julie can hear it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure it'll be in my email inbox in about 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> if I know Ken. <laughs> well, I have another meeting to do in a half an hour, and I have to relocate my... Uh, computers so they're probably on youtube they, i i My would, mother think, will find I would it. think so yes i think i may have seen them in bridgeport in the old days i can't remember of course you did well it, uh to the members of McHenry spring and everybody out there <laughs> in listener land thank you for tuning in this week uh we'll, we'll, we'll see you in two weeks everyone have a safe and happy halloween